it feels like one of the greatest temptations that we have as pastors is in that kind of a contentious climate to let the the culture and the world around us or even the people in our congregations hand to us the things that we should be anxious about. Welcome to Hope Renewed, helping you find new hope when ministry leaves you hopeless. The Hope Renewed podcast is brought to you by PIR Ministries. Here are your hosts, Tom Jameson and Sean Nemechek. Well, Sean, I, I'm very excited today to have what is, it feels to be a very important, very timely conversation uh, about choosing a posture of grace and love in contentious times. Uh, I think so many pastors have been challenged, not only through COVID, but now as we enter into another political season, uh, challenged by knowing how best to lead their congregations in in a Christ-like way, and, and even lead themselves uh, to, to have a posture that, that honors uh, the Lord. And so today we've invited David Henderson to be with us. David is a pastor and author, uh, is my pastor at Covenant uh, EPC in West Lafayette, Indiana. And David, it's a joy to welcome you to Hope Renewed. Well, Tom and Sean, thanks so much for your invitation. I'm humbled to be part of the conversation. Yeah, welcome, David. I'm I'm curious if we're going to get some dirt on Tom during this interview. Oh man, <laughs> if you only knew. Well, uh, actually, I'm going to disappoint you on that in that regard. I love having Tom be a part of our church's life, and he brings uh, so much. So, um, well, you yeah, we, can, we can have an You're offline precious. conversation about that, Sean, uh, and it would be very offline. So. Uh, <laughs> Well, our, our desire for this conversation is really to encourage and equip pastors with a sense of hope as they anticipate um, the, the coming year of cultural and political challenge. And, and David, you know, you and I have had a number of conversations, and I've been sitting under your ministry for a number of years now, as you have uh, had this theme in mind um and have given deep deep thought to it and i i really look forward to just your sharing uh some of what the lord has worked in your own life and how you're leading uh the the folks at covenant in this but prior to delving into that i uh, i think it'd be important if you wouldn't mind by way of introduction of yourself to our listeners just share an overview of your journey with christ and ministry for him Great. Happy to do that. Boy, I uh, I look back over my shoulder at uh, the years of, of my walking with the Lord, and I just think it is all grace. I, mm. uh, Tom, you know something of my story. I grew up in a church uh, going home, but I, I think I would characterize um, my parents' faith as being um, serious, but very private. And in that setting, um, I didn't feel like there was a lot of open invitation to bring the questions and the concerns that I had. So my own uh, wrestling with Christianity also uh, was very private. I remember early on, I it feels like first or second grade, beginning to have some questions about these the things that were being taught to me in Sunday school and getting the impression as I started asking questions that questions weren't okay. And, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, it was kind of a, uh, the impression I got was you just need to accept this stuff at face value. Uh, okay. So there's a Santa Claus who I'm not supposed to believe in that we acted like is real, <laughs> but there is a God who is also equally invisible and equally generous, but I am supposed to believe in it. You know, that kind of down yeah. that. Uh, so uh, Questions formed, which then got solidified into convictions. And I would say that by the time I was in middle school, I I, I believed in the so, that there was some supernatural dimension to life, but didn't believe that there was a God. And then by the time I got to uh, high school, was completely a materialist, atheist, uh, just believe it's time plus matter plus chance. And then... Uh, experienced um, God's uh, gracious, tenacious, kind pursuit of me uh, all through college and um, 
and because of a whole lot of creative ways that God pursued me and won me over, uh, gave my life to him, uh, really coming back to Christianity as an outsider uh, and, um, and turning my life over uh, to the Lord. And with that, um, with that moment of conversion came for me a sense that this would be the thing that would define the whole of my life, including vocationally. So I had a sense of call to ministry that came right in concurrently with that. And uh, so I um, was already heading to Procter & Gamble at that point to work in uh, marketing and management and doing brand management. And uh, during uh, a year that I worked there, it became really clear that the, Lord, the Lord's call to ministry was a now calling, not a down the road sometime. Mm -hmm. And so I left there, did an internship at a church for a year in Cincinnati, and then headed off to seminary. For four years at Gordon-Conwell, did a follow-up year of study in England. And then I've had been involved in just two uh, pastoral ministry settings. That One is an associate pastor at a uh, PCUSA church in Colorado Springs for nine years, where I was an associate pastor and then interim senior pastor and then back to associate pastor. And then I became the senior pastor of the church where I, I am now. And I think that was about 26 years ago that that mm -hmm. happened. Wow. Yeah. So that's the very quick flyover. I have a, a beautiful wife. Uh, I've been blessed to be married uh, to for 39 years. And we have four kids and four grandkids. And uh, and I, boy, what a what a source of joy they all are for mm. me. Well, thanks for sharing all that. That that uh, really gives us a sense of, uh, you know, your your calling. And uh, I think, you know, you've been in ministry long enough that you know a lot of pastors, I'm sure. Uh, and you're probably sensing some of the challenges that pastors are facing right now. Um, can you talk about what it's like being a pastor and engaging in a contentious culture or climate? I think that's a really interesting question. And I actually, this is one that I would love to put back to the two of you first to, to find out, you know, what's your read on that? What, what, mm. what do you experience? You guys have a lot more connection than I do maybe across the country and certainly dealing with pastors who might be in a place of crisis or struggle. Um, what, what's your sense of how pastors are struggling navigating uh, the contentious spirit of our culture today? I think uh, the pastors I'm talking to are very tired. Uh, they're, they're tired of the anger that they're facing, um, tired of division. Um, they're tired of how politics has become more important than discipleship in some cases. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the word I would use, tired. And, and I would say the tiredness comes from uh, just an uncertainty on how to navigate uh, all of this. As I talk with pastors, there's there's either a sense of, um, you know, they, they didn't teach us about this in uh, seminary, uh, just in terms of uh, navigating political division amongst your congregation or right. mask or no mask or, you know, just a wide variety of things. Um, or just this uh, deep uncertainty about how the church is to be in the midst of mm. this megatrend culture that is constantly shifting uh, and uh, with, you know, all the uh, online competition, if you will, for the hearts and minds of, of those sitting in the congregation. Those are really helpful. I appreciate those insights. Yeah, they're, they're, and we've been watching, it seems like over the last five years, the church being displaced in American culture in a profound way, like in, in a first time in our lifetime sort of way that we're experiencing where we've had, we've been in this sort of buffered, protected, uh, central place, protected place in our culture. And it feels as though there's, uh, we, there's a being relegated to the place of, of irrelevance, and even beyond that, the beginnings, I think, of are being relegated to the place of uh, the opposition as, as mm -hmm. cultural agendas, particularly as I'm thinking related to things like sexuality and gender politics, but other things where uh, it feels like people are, are kind of taking their gloves off as it relates to engaging with the church. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I think um, 
So some of that, both the weariness that you identified, Sean, and the uncertainty that you identified, Tom, I think are connected to a deeper um, sort of tectonic plate shift that we feel in our culture that we may not even be registering apart from that kind of deep bass rumble that happens in an earthquake. Like, wow, everything is shaking right now. Uh, what is solid? Where, where do I get my sure footing? It feels like one of the greatest temptations that we have as pastors is in that kind of a contentious climate to let the, the culture and the world around us or even the people in our congregations hand to us the things that we should be anxious about and the things mm -hmm. that we should be um, busying our ourselves with. So like you mentioned, Sean, the concern about kind of this political divide that seems to be present everywhere. And I think our churches can come to us and say, here, uh, uh, we want that to be an issue that's at the forefront for you too. We want you to frame things in political terms as we are accustomed to framing right. things in political mm -hmm. terms. Yeah. Um, our, our, every voice that we're hearing in our culture that is discipling us about how to be involved in politics or education or whatever else is yelling. And they're all belittling the, those other guys. Why aren't you doing that? We want you to take on the same shrill tone uh, that uh, we're accustomed to hearing in our culture. Um, because if you don't, if you're not yelling like everybody else, it's a little bit hard to hear you if you're remaining in a gracious uh, posture. So I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I'm so persuaded of, it's just been a, a, a gift of the grace of God and the timing of, of his work in me by his spirit is just a month before COVID hit, absolutely not knowing it was about to hit, God started me down a path that I'm still on of plunging into the devotional classics and reading Julian of Norwich, who uh, was uh, writing during a time when the plague hit uh, England and, and reading Catherine of Siena, who uh, similarly during a time when a plague hit Italy and, and reading Thomas Akempis and, and, uh, and the, the anonymous, the wonderful, um, anonymous work theologica theologia germanica and, uh, and and all those things and they they um they've been perspective giving for me in a way that has reminded me that counterintuitively the best way i can engage the culture and to engage my people who are uh shaped by the culture is to fix my eyes on the lord first and in a in a way that defines me something that has been so important and tom you know this has been some of my own reflection uh recently but um i, I remember coming across uh a line somebody shared in seminary uh I, I, jonathan uh taylor maybe is the guy's name is a pastor in the 1600s who wrote a, a a line that's uh that is says god loveth adverbs and I remember finding that kind of quirky and amusing when I was in seminary, but boy, in the, in the last four years, that line has come back to very significantly shape me. Uh, the, you know, the, the basic idea, God loves adverbs that uh, what we do is important. And uh, we as evangelicals tend to be very concerned with what we do. Obviously the scriptures are concerned with what we do. Here's how we should live. These are the things that should, we should be about missionally and so on. But I think it's been easy for us to uh, give um, insufficient emphasis to how we do what we do mm. as being not just important, but part of the very missional work and, and missional message that we are communicating. And uh, so I, I, in a contentious culture, some of the most important work that God's been doing in me has been challenging some of the starting assumptions that taking up a sword, that elevating the pitch and volume of my voice, that, um, that drawing lines and using warfare language and, uh, and making sharp us them delineations 
um, all those sort of cultural assumptions, I, I feel like God has been challenging in me. Tom, you know, one of the most important passages that I've spent a lot of time thinking about is the uh, one where it's really the only place that Jesus uses adjectives to describe himself um, when he describes himself as humble and lowly of heart. And then Paul uses those exact same two words in Ephesians and says that we're supposed to be marked by those same mm -hmm. qualities. Mm -hmm. And boy, I, I look around and I don't see a whole lot of evidence to either of those qualities. Mm. And I believe that we as evangelicals can see those as optional. You know, when we're getting along with someone, we can be gentle and humble. But when we're not, it's time to, time to ramp up and escalate and so it seems to me we read the line in Ephesians to, to say, speak the truth or love instead of speak the truth in love. Um, mm -hmm. And and I think speaking the truth in love means with humility and with gentleness. Well, I, I just, you know, the, the sense of actively resisting getting sucked into the vortex of the culture. I, I mean, it, it does take uh, more and more intentionality in our lives not to to simply um become like the, the culture around us and i thought it was so salient that you said david that you know we we've been taking our cues from the culture about how to be in the culture as, as the church uh mm -hmm. and so in order to to be relevant to the culture we have to become like the culture somehow when what what Christ has said is totally opposite of that, right? To be relevant to the world, become like me, uh, which can appear to be the most irrelevant or or uh, unapproachable uh, way to be in the world. And yet, this is this is the direction that he he calls us. And it, it just seems to me that the great temptations that that pastors face is this temptation to become relevant in in a way that is counter to the gospel uh yes. either discounting the gospel or minimizing the gospel and and for all of us to forget that no that's that's the first relevancy um is to be true to to the gospel that's that is exactly right tom uh i I mean, you, you, you know, I've shared this with our session. Um, we are, and you're aware of this, we walked through a discernment process that, again, in the providence of God was just about nine months before COVID struck. So we, God, by his grace, led us to a place where um, we were kind of already wrestling through some of these things ahead of the, the arrival of COVID. Uh, Sharon and I were blessed to be able to live in England for um, a uh, a portion of a summer about five years ago. And there were cathedrals that were trying to make themselves relevant by putting putt-putt golf courses in their sanctuaries. And and I thought, this is the 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 height of the example of the way that wanting to have a place of relevance in our culture, we've gone backwards and moved to marketing method as a way to try to get people's bodies into the physical premises, but not in a way that's engaging with the gospel at all. And uh, during the time that we were in England, we also, we happened to attend uh, worship um, at a church that was um, kind of unknown in the community and uh, tucked into a neighborhood and the we walked in and you could feel immediately the love of God among the people. And there was nothing flashing about flashy about their building, nothing flashy about them. They didn't have any extensive programs. They were a group of people who embodied in the way they related and in the way they served in the community in quiet, humble ways, the one thing that makes the church distinctively relevant. There's only one thing that we have to offer that, that a country club or the Boy Scouts or somebody else doesn't have to offer. And that is the love of God 
as manifest in Christ, relationship with him that is transformative, becomes missional, eternal, and so on, that we, we have nothing else to give. And that is absolutely our relevance, which is why if I'm relating in a way about that love of God that is unloving and contentious, then I, in the very act of doing that, am beginning to distort and misrepresent the message of the gospel. Mm. Uh, so again, it kind of brings us back to the manner in which we relate with our own people and the manner in which we lead our people to relate in our culture. Um, I think those things are a huge part of missional faithfulness. You know, this conversation uh, reminds me of a quote I heard at uh, um, a doxology conference put on by the Eugene Peterson Center. Um, the, the I, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it was something along the lines of, love operates at a slow pace. When we try to love in a hurry, we do damage. But chasing relevance is always in a hurry. Uh, and very interesting. I, I think that's kind of what you're talking about to a degree yeah. that that what we're we're really exploring here is the countercultural nature of love. Is that right? Absolutely, Sean. Yes. And and the the irony is that butts us up against our own um highest priorities um uh, as followers of Jesus and our culture. Uh, just as an example, uh, I want to share the gospel with my neighbor. If that's the thing I have in my mind, then I'm looking for an opportunity. I'm going to overstate this, but I'm looking for an opportunity to corner them at a moment when I can unload my message to them with a thought that they would be compelled and persuaded by the message and that the message itself would move them to to uh, take a step towards faith. Yeah. And I, I others others may have evidence that is to the contrary. More and more in my experience, the conversions that are the result of someone being cornered, I don't see as lasting as bearing lasting fruit. Those aren't the people I see staying with the faith in an enduring and life-transformed sort of way, where on the other hand, if my goal is just to love my neighbor, which means I'm attentive to their needs and I share in their joys and their disappointments, and and I find ways to, uh, to engage myself in their life and to engage them in my life and to show concern, then at the moment when genuine spiritual need begins to stir in a person's heart as God awakens them to himself, what we have lived out together will become compelling and attractive and um, and make the reality of the gospel already something that they have beheld. Um, and uh, and I think then the the highest way I can love them becomes my talking to them about my faith at the right moment. And they're already well down the path in understanding what the faith is about. It's not something that is a cornering, contentious approach, but is is the fruit of the highest fruit of love. And and that takes time. It, and it seems so backward to the way we're living as yeah. as a culture, as a world. Uh, that um, you know, really, the rallying cry is you no. Know, get your voice out there. Make sure what you believe in is heard say it louder than everybody else uh and get you know get enough people on your side so that you have the votes to you know make your... so yeah yeah love is is counterintuitive to uh the culture in which we live and uh david you you've been leading us at, at covenant and and i know you won't take sole credit for this, that it has just been a movement of God among the people there, but you've been leading us in this deep conviction, deepening conviction, uh, as a congregation to be known more for our love than anything else in, in our interaction with the community. How, how have you seen that developed, uh, among the folks there and, uh, yeah. that's, in our that's, interaction? Yeah. That's a, uh, it's been a rich, uh, 
thing we've been working our way through. So first of all, to clarify, and I've appreciated the desire on the part of the congregation to clarify this, but wait, if we're saying we want to be known more for our love than for anything else, isn't that a way of saying we are becoming soft on biblical truth or we're um, maybe um, starting to make some sort of concessions that Jesus isn't the only way? Absolutely not. Mm. Um, the, the, the question of what we are known for in the community um, has to do with what they first experience from us. It's not the whole truth about us, but it is the presenting truth about us. And uh, so we had a fascinating conversation as a staff during this discernment time where one of the guys on our staff said, so let me ask this question. If, if someone were to just reach down, grab covenant and pluck us out of the community, first, would anybody notice that we were gone? And second, um, what would they miss us? And what would they miss us for? And then the related question of, so what are we known for? If we go out in the community and just say, hey, what's your, you know, what have, what have you heard about our church family? Um, what, what kinds of things are the connections that people are making in their minds? And I mean, to be really honest, and, and Tom, I've shared this, uh, I, you know, I kind of, it's like, well, yeah, 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 love. Yeah, of course, you know, that's, that, it's, the, it's the Christian thing. <laughs> but I have not taken love seriously as the centerpiece of the Christian faith probably until the last eight years or so. And mm. so I, I read a passage like uh, John chapter 13, where Jesus says, okay, do you want to know what will be the thing that communicates to people that you are my disciple? It's not your programs. It's, it's not your whatever, fill in the blank. It's your love. And uh, so we've been taking that part more and more seriously as a church. And Love does, is not the same thing as condoning. It's another important conversation we've had as a church. For me to accept you, the, the biblical term, accept one another just as God in Christ has accepted you. It means welcome. It means extend hospitality. But the word is made of two other Greek words that mean move towards the other person and draw them in towards you. Our moving towards other people who don't know Jesus, who, who have not only different faith, but a different moral framework, our moving towards them and drawing them in towards us is not the same thing as our condoning their behavior any more than for Jesus to move towards the tax collector and draw him in mm -hmm. towards himself or to move towards the prostitute and draw her in towards himself, that that was a way of condoning their behavior. No, no, no. Um, but uh, we, we want uh, those we interact with to glimpse the heart of God uh, when they encounter us in the community. And it's been really encouraging to see that happen. I mean, we've, we've actually, as we've been intentional in, in focusing on loving our literal neighbor, the person who lives behind me, in front of me, and on either side of me, how do I get to know them? How do I know their names? How do I find out what their needs are? How do I borrow tools with them? So I have an excuse to get to know them, ask for their help. You know, so often when we go in with, as one of the, all the answers, that doesn't get us very far. But mm -hmm. asking other people to help us in our need is a great way of, of deepening a relationship. And as we have been doing that, we are hearing more and more gurgling up in the community are being known for our love, which is a profound encouragement um, and a deep joy for us. So as we think about this, this idea of being known for our love more than anything else, it has to start with pastors and ministry leaders hmm. in the church. Um, What's required for them to grow, to live out of this posture? Well, that's a great question. I love that, Sean. Well, I say this not at all facetiously. Uh, we can't do this. It's, mm -hmm. It just, uh, I cannot muster up love at all. All I know to do is to ask God to form in my heart what I'm incapable of forming in it myself. And uh, so this goes back to what I was saying is some of the posture where God has had me. I feel like the most important step I can take to love the people that God's placed around me is to pursue him passionately. I'm, I'm spending longer and longer time with the Lord each day and loving that and loving mm -hmm. what that's forming in me. And I've had people say, hey, what is this that's kind of different in you that I'm sensing? And I think that is a place that I would trace that back to. It's it's. It is the work of God. And Romans 5, 5, he says that is the very work that 
the Holy Spirit wants to do in us is it is the Spirit of God who pours the love of God into our hearts. So I want to go through life like this. Um, and and we said to our staff, hey, if, if you haven't had time with the Lord each day, you have no business coming in and doing ministry. Th- that is your mm-hmm. most important relationship. That's the most important thing you mm-hmm. can be doing. Uh, so how do you need to restructure your life so that, that your pursuit of him comes first? And we've actually put that on all of our position descriptions, um, that your first job responsibility is to pursue your relationship with the Lord. And and the, that's part of what we'll have a conversation about each year when we come to our annual planning and evaluation times. So I, I think that's a starting point. Shauna, a, a second thing that has been very important to me has been wrestling through this question of whether I'm justified in being angry at a world that offends God. God has every reason to be offended. It is his holiness that is being offended mm-hmm. when someone crosses a moral line. There's a really interesting book called Unoffendable. I don't remember the author. You may remember Tom, uh, where uh, the, this guy's argument as a follower of Christ is, hey, is there is there actually any situation we can be in where we can justify our being offended by the people that God's placed around us? And and I, th- I think it's a very thought-provoking uh direction that he takes the conversation so i i need to wrestle through what whether my being a loving person is at odds in some way with the holiness of god am i failing to honor god Mm. if i fail to take offense at somebody else's sin one of the most important books i've read in the last several years is a book called the patient ferment of the early church by uh, a church historian named alan Kreider. Wow, uh, what an incredible resource. It's a study of all of the available material we have, sermons, writings from the first 350 years or so of the life of the church. And fascinatingly, uh, Kreider points out that the thing that the church focused on more than anything else was the way that love expresses itself in patience in the life of followers of Jesus. They are patient in their dealings with each other, They are uh, patient when uh, natural disasters happen and they're generous in sharing the resources with others who are not followers of Jesus. And they are patient when they experience persecution. They don't take up the sword, but they continue to love. And uh, what uh, what Kreider points out is the passage of scripture that the early church memorized more than any other, as best we can tell, is from the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter five, verses 43 to 48 that talk about, Uh, how we are to be, um, to show ourselves to be children of our heavenly father, to be like him in this respect. Um, God allows the, his son to shine on those who are good and those who are evil. God allows his reign, his life-giving reign to fall on the just and on the unjust. And he's saying, then Jesus says, and we are to be perfect in the same way that the Father is perfect. And I think what that means is perfect means complete. Nothing's missing in that context. Mm -hmm. So um, he says, you know, if you just love the people who love you, well, that's got half of the spectrum covered, but something's missing. If you you just pray for those who pray for you, if you're just kind to those who are kind to you, that, that, yes, with them, that reflects the heart of God, but you're failing to reflect the heart of God towards those Mm -hmm. who are actually offending God. So if God himself, the one who should take offense at our being evil and our being unjust, is generous in his provision of life for the humanity, the rebellious humanity that he created, that what I'm being invited into is to reflect that same heart of God towards those who I might consider offensive or who I might believe are, are offending God. So again, not, without, not with any, anything in the way of moral compromise, and we can maybe talk about some examples of that in, in a few minutes of some ways that I've tried to kind of navigate that in my own relationships. But um, I have been really challenged by this passage of scripture that really challenged the early church. And and this is this is the some of the, the impetus that led me to explore that. I read Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, and then that led me to, to as a follow-up to um, Alan Kreider's book. And the argument that they make is, there is one thing that you can point the growth of the early church to. 
they were in an even more of a hotbed of religious contention than we are. Mm. They were in an even more diverse, perverse moral environment than we are today. They were, uh, the early church was this suspect, unimportant, um, inconsequential, ragtag bunch of people. And yet the church just burst in its growth in the first 350 years. How do we account for that? Both Starks and Kreider would say it was their love. Uh, it, that was the thing that set them apart. Um, that was what um, propelled their mission forward. It's, I, I can't get out of my head this sense that um, as you speak about um, being unoffendable, uh, boy, that, that just, uh, that's a deep work that God needs to do in my <laughs> life. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet, isn't that what he calls us to that, that sense of, I'm, I'm thinking of Psalm 51, you know, against you only have I sinned. Uh, and, and understanding that, that the Lord deals with the offensive part uh, of sin, but he responds in wanting to make his love known and his choice is to make his love known through his people. And that's that's really where we stand as the followers of Christ, as the conduit of God's love in the overarching purposes of of God. That's our maybe our u- unique role. Um, I mean, we're still the the church is a pillar and standard of the truth. Yes, and we're we're going to live in that truth, um, but we're going to interact with the world to make God's love known. Because of that yeah. truth. Yeah. So the, the theme of family resemblance that comes through in a couple different ways in that Matthew 5 passage uh, becomes so important. What does it mean for us to be the body of Christ if we don't resemble the, the one mm. whose body we are? Um, and and obviously it's not a physical resemblance. So what should, what is the nature of our resemblance? And Well, I was going to say, so tell us a story here, David of stepping out seeking to resemble Christ in your interactions? Well, I, I have a number, um, and um, in none of them do I present myself as kind of the mm-hmm. model of virtue in this. In all of these, this is something that, you know, I, as I've told you, my, my first act each day is to come before God and say, please do in me and through me what I'm incapable mm-hmm. of. Um, so one example that comes to mind is one that actually goes back several years and this gets at the question of wait is this is this really talking about we just become soft on sin um and so we we had a a pastor in our community uh this is back in the old days when in our local newspaper there were letters to the editor uh kind of a thing of the past or at least you know that social media has become the forum in which a lot of that conversation happens and a pastor in our community wrote a letter in which he essentially said hey uh folks the Christian church got it wrong. All along, we've been telling you that homosexuality is uh, inconsistent with God's will. We've made a mistake. Actually, God made us that way, and the church should celebrate that that's how, uh, that is a way that people uh, are oriented um, uh, sexually. And uh, and the, the church has failed to be loving and gracious in its welcome. Um, so uh, this is a, a pastor a person uh, of that are the rest of the community would recognize as having some authority saying, here is what Christianity teaches. I thought, I just can't let this one go. Um, so I wrote a, what I hoped would be a very gracious letter in reply in which I just said, Hey, Ed, with all due respect, um, I, I think this mis- misrepresents 2000 years of consistent understanding in the life of the church and represents really kind of a current development and not a faithful one. I disagree with my brother, and uh, and here's why, and uh, and walked through that. So before I uh, published that, I called this pastor who I've not met, and I said, "Hey, uh, I just want you to know that I'm uh, writing a letter to the editor in which I disagree with you, and uh, it just felt like it would be um, uncivil of me to to for us to be having a public conversation that we weren't having in private first. I wonder if we could just have a chance to get to know each other." Um, and I let me send you what I'm going to be writing, but more importantly, mm-hmm. I just like to get to know you, and I'd like to hear your story. And so he and I went to uh, lunch. We met for three hours. He told me 
in tears, uh, some of his painful story of somebody who was same sex attracted and, uh, and some of the actually very, very unkind ways that the church treated him and others that were appropriate ways that the church sought to help shepherd him towards biblical faithfulness. And, uh, and so we had a very civil conversation and I uh, gave him a hug when we left and told him how grateful I was for the conversation and, and then published the, the letter to the editor the next day, mm-hmm. saw him later in the community. Six months later, he walked right up to me, shook my hand uh, and said hello by name. And, um, and that would be an example to me of, of trying to, uh, to speak the truth in love. Mm. Here, here's another example. Um, we have a lesbian couple who lives on our street. Uh, they each um, have children from previous marriages, got married recently. And uh, and I've become sort of the, uh, I, I, I got a, um, <laughs> Tom's laughing. I don't really know the name to describe it, but sort of the one who shepherds our 28 houses in our community. I started a neighborhood directory, which as a way to help us get to know each other and help facilitate relationships and, and have held a number of events to try to bring the community together, our, to our neighborhood together, which has been really, really meaningful. Um, and I've loved it. But this couple has been one of the most faithful people coming and uh, our faithful folks coming to these. And I've just made a point with them as I have anybody else to try to get to know them, get to know the names of their kids and, and uh, that sort of thing to greet them as they drive in and out mm-hmm. of the neighborhood. And, uh, about, uh, I don't know, a year ago, I got a text from one of them said, so David, um, we, uh, we've been talking about spiritual stuff and, uh, and thinking maybe it's time for us to make it take a next step. And we thought, well, who would we trust more than David Henderson to, to lead us into that conversation? So what do we do? Uh, what's the next step? Can we come to your church? And I thought, oh, I love this. And, ah, oh, this is so hard <laughs> at the same time. Uh, and, uh, and I, so I was so honored by that comment. So I said, Hey, you know, how about if, um, Christmas Eve was coming up? I said, you guys, we'd love to have you come and worship with us. That would be awesome. But how about if I come down and just talk with you and get to know you more, hear some of what's been stirring in you. And, and I thought, okay, I need to be honest about where we are as a, as a church that we uphold a biblical perspective on, on this issue. Um, but do that in a loving way. So we, uh, it was such an awesome connection. Again, it was like a three hour conversation. We had, uh, so rich. But the last 45 minutes got very hard because it took this turn. Um, uh, I said, so you, you guys are thinking about uh, coming to worship? And they said, yeah, so here's our question. Would we be welcomed by the rest of your church and say, well, you welcome us? And I said, well, I think I need to answer that in two ways. Uh, on the one hand, I would hope that each individual that you encounter would also communicate what you've told me you've received from me, which is a regard for who you are as individuals, um, and uh, caring for you, pursuing you, being interested in you, wanting to know your kids, wanting to know your story. I think, yeah, I think that's the welcome you would receive. At the same time, I need you to know that we are not what's called an affirming church. We um, we come from a perspective that teaches that the God's uh, intention, his design when it comes to our sexuality is relationships between men and women in marriage. And there was this long pause, this kind of leaning back in chairs and looking up deep sigh and wow. Okay. That's really, really, really hard. And, uh, but that wasn't the end of the conversation. And uh, I stayed for another 45 minutes and, and I said, please tell me about what makes that hard. And please tell me what your experiences with other churches have been like. And, um, and I can I can appreciate that if you were thinking that I was our church was coming from a perspective where um, the relationship that you have would be just completely acceptable. I can see how that would be really difficult. Well, we ended up staying in there in the conversation and I just have to commend them. They could not have been more civil and gracious, mm-hmm. could not have been. Um, I was learning from them about how to be civil in a difficult moment. And at the end of the conversation, I gave them both a hug, told them I loved them and how grateful I was for our friendship and that I hoped that it would continue. And uh, and we've continued to stay in touch. We've shared they've shared prayer requests with me and I've been praying for them. And and whenever we come through the neighborhood, they always stop and say hello. And um, so that would be another example of the way that that's getting mm. lived out. So, you know, they would have no question about where I stand. But by the grace of God, I think they would still say you know, this Henderson character, um, wow, we sure don't agree with everything that he believes, but, um, 
man, he is a loving guy. Well, and I think just the fact that they would come back to that, the fact that this pastor would six months later, reach out, shake your hand, call you by name is an indication that they recognize something different than just a, a strident message or uh, a judgmental tone uh, yeah. that there, there is love present and they're responding to that. And isn't that what God wants us to respond to is his yeah. love for us in Christ. Yeah. Because is, is this a person or is this a position yeah. uh, that I'm, that I'm interacting with? And, and I always want to be able to be, to be able to, address positions in a loving and gracious, biblically informed way. But I don't ever want to reduce a person to be small enough to fit through the whole of their position. Mm -hmm. I think also involved in this is recognizing that um, none of us get all cleaned up before we come to Jesus. Man, you yes, know, Sean. The, the, right. we, we are all works in progress and in process. Uh, and the Holy Spirit is the one who meets us and does his work at his pace um, in different ways with different people. Um, and so as you think about uh, pastors and ministry leaders addressing the different contentions they face in their church, um, and th there's so many of them, we can make a, a big list. Um, how can they do this? How can they address the contention, uh, the different sides that, that they're facing within their congregation uh, and bring them to that unity that we're supposed to have in Christ? Well, I, I think part of this is unlearning stuff that the culture has so uh, intentionally discipled us in, uh, such as unity is the thing that comes on the other side of agreement. That's a belief our culture has. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's really interesting that the agreement that the, the unity um, that we are uh, have urged upon us biblically, I think of Philippians chapter two, the best definition of unity that I know of in scripture is being one in spirit and in purpose, which is very different than we have exactly the same outlook on every issue. So one mm -hmm. in spirit, I I'm humble. I'm teachable i i i recognize that i may not have all the answers even though i've wrestled with this and i really thought to think about this biblically in a biblically faithful way and one in spirit and one in purpose you know we are about the same end which is making jesus known and bringing him glory and honor in our midst and and in this community and uh, and we have this idea that uh unity is the thing that's found on the other side of one of us arm twisting the other one into a place of agreement mm. on, on a political issue or a moral issue or something like that. And, and I think we need to go exactly the other way around. Our unity in Christ is our starting point, not the place we end up if we discover we're in the same political party. Uh, it, it is the starting point. It is really the one thing that we have mm -hmm. in common with. He is the one thing we have in common with each other. And, and I think that um, because of some of the uh, currents of thought in the last 70 years or so that have shaped our American culture specifically, there have been places where there's a blurring together of patriotism and Christianity or a blurring together of republicanism and evangelical Christianity or a blurring together of, uh, of a certain outlook on on thinking through economics or, or how we use law with moral issues and other things like that. And, and I think it is, uh, that has led us to have this kind of, uh, reflex. If I discover that you don't share my same outlook, instead of saying, wow, I find that so intriguing. What are some of the biblically pa biblical passages that inform your thinking in this area? Mm -hmm. And let me share with you some of mine and let's talk about how that informs us instead we go what how can you call yourself a christian and blank there's this like instant reflex uh you know there were people who left covenant after um after 
in in the middle of COVID and said that the reason they did is because I was a communist. Well, it's like, well, that's that's sure news to me. That how interesting, uh, you know, this kind of this kind of quick labeling, uh, this reflexive posture. If you don't, if you're not in my party or in my camp, then instantly you are somehow dishonoring God. And it seems to me that the only the only camp is fellow lovers of Jesus. And then what divides that from the rest of the world is not that we are the righteous ones or the perfect ones. It's just that we happen to have experienced grace and they have not yet. Um, but that, and, and by the grace of God that we may be beginning to be transformed in the likeness of Jesus and becoming moral, more moral people and, and people of greater integrity. But, um, you know, one of the images that I've used is we've become so polarized in our culture that it's like a global cooling where the two poles have just expanded glacially. Um, and now mm. there's, there's just all that exists on our planet is two poles. There's no temperate climate in between where we can say, I can see your perspective and I can see your perspective and I'm stretched and challenged by that. I want to learn more. Uh, th there's a great book uh, by actually written by an atheist uh, called How to Have Impossible Conversations that I found very instructive in being able to figure out how to, how to have a conversation across lines of difference where you're not just doing the, you're not in my camp, I, I, I push mm. you away. Again, going back to the, 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 the word accept, accept one another just as God in Christ has accepted you and you will bring glory to God, Romans chapter 15, verse 7. The opposite of that is judging or rejecting. That's the same thing where instead of moving towards you and drawing you in, I'm pushing you away and pulling back from you. And, and I think love propels us in the opposite direction to overcome that. So this is some starting thoughts. Sean, how would you and um, how would you uh, take that those thoughts further? Yeah, I think one of the major movements for me, just probably about the same amount of time that you've been experiencing this, um, has been recognizing that I can't be loving and defensive at the same time. Oh, wow. Um, that usually um, if I'm acting out of fear, uh, that's what leads to a defensive posture and perfect love drives out fear. Um, and so if I'm really going to be loving to somebody, I have to be able to meet them where they're at, um, and recognize that they're meeting me where I'm at too. Um, and neither of us is complete. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's a major, been a major movement for me. Um, the other one is recognizing, uh, having conversations with, uh, people who are different politically from me has taught me that most of my assumptions about them are not true. Sure. Um, and there are people who genuinely love Jesus and come to different political positions than I do out of their love for Jesus. Uh, and right. some wow. profound, profound conversations uh, about how the spirit has led us to these different places and what we can learn from one another. Um, that's rich. And, and so that, that's, that's been hard for me, but very, very good at the same time. And it's taught me uh, how to be patient and gentle uh, because I don't understand as much as I think I do about the other person. Mm -hmm. David, as you share uh, just what resonates so much more and more with me is how who I am is, is fundamentally, deeply, and ultimately only rooted in who I am in Christ. And uh, recognizing uh, my own striving and my own uh need to define myself uh or to you know ingratiate myself because of my own misguided motives uh instead of um, as you said just sitting more and more and more in the truth of who i am in christ and living out of that uh is uh, i that that's where the lord has me right now 
Um, I love it. It's a, a self-forgetfulness, uh, kind of the the indifference, mm. right, to to ourselves and being yeah. open to God. Yeah. I think another passage of scripture that's been so significant for me is the passage on the wisdom that comes from above in James. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a, a careful study of those qualities um, uh, really behooves us as followers of Jesus. It mm-hmm. uh, is amazing how countercultural is, uh, how how cultural is the list of the wisdom that comes from below and how countercultural with its arguing and quarreling and all that and how how different is the nature of the wisdom that comes from above with humility and yeah. teachability and, and kindness and a regard for others and patience. And You brought up a really important point in talking about the, the priority of our unity, um, that we are first, uh, Christ has united himself to us um, and through him to one another. Um, and that that absolutely has to be the priority. Not that, not it's that it's something that we've done, but that it's something Christ has done, and we now need to live out of that unity we have with Christ yeah. um, and with one another. And I, I think I that, that that is such an important principle for us to to hold on to in this space. Sean, I really agree with that. It's interesting. We've been, as Tom knows, we've been doing a series in First Thessalonians. And I just was struck that in three different places in First Thessalonians, it talks about kind of where all this is going is Jesus comes back and he takes us to himself together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and the thing that struck me is, you know, when we sit down on Sunday morning and look across at one another, it's like, these are the people that you're going to be spending eternity with. And, <laughs> and we, uh, we are so anxious that everybody end up in a place of agreeing with us that when they don't, we let our differences become fatal to our relationships in a way that is um, mm. is a lie against the truth of the gospel, which is uh, that we have already been united in Christ. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I um, have really appreciated The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. I don't know if that's a book that you're familiar with. Uh, he uh, explores what it is that um, gives each one of us a particular kind of instinctual bent towards um, a one political posture or another. And he says that there are six qualities that every human being has um, that tend to cluster together. Four of them cluster and two of them cluster and can inform kind of an outlook. And basically the ones that cluster together, I won't remember this exactly right, but uh, the seeing the value of authority and the value of tradition and the value of unity and the value of order uh, is a part of all of us. We all appreciate those things. And when those things tend to cluster together, you will tend to, that will tend to characterize a politically conservative person. And then uh, also in every human being is, a recognition that there are some people who are who fall outside of the system who need to be regarded, and their uh, and experience being marginalized or experience unjust treatment and need to be cared for in that regard. That there's some needs that they have that in the collective are not being met, and so it's the eye for the individual and their unique needs, the eye for the collective and and its order and whole, and. And it's like, well, how Jesus-like are both of those clusters of qualities? And we all mm. uphold all of those things, but in different balances and different proportions. You know, as soon as you you hear that, it's like, well, Sean, the con- kind of conversations you were just talking about, it's like, wow, yeah, you, what you want is a God-honoring thing. And, mm-hmm. and the things that God has put in my heart are also God-honoring. This is about, for both of us, this is about how do we honor God as we think about politics. Um, and how do we learn from each other in that regard? I'm, we are better um, if a person having this cluster of of of, uh, of bents being accentuated is better off having a person with these qualities mm-hmm. accentuated alongside them to make that the the society that we fashion all the more beautiful and all the more honoring yeah. of, of God. I love that that you know what you've shared here, David, is that rooted in all of this is a hope 
that that to live this kind of lifestyle, to have this kind of perspective, to live out of an identity of Christ is rooted in the hope uh, that God gives us in Christ and allowing that to be certain uh, and strong enough that we don't have to be right. We don't have to get the final perfect answer uh, that everyone else has to agree with. Uh, And that, I mean, that takes humility, but it it rests in the hope, as I see it, that God God is going to make all things as they should uh, and will bring all things uh, to their rightful place. Uh, yeah, the, the the hope that I have of um, a new heaven and a new earth is a pretty feeble hope and a pretty hopeless hope if I think that somehow my machinations are what get us there. Yeah. And on the other hand, if I recognize that it is only by grace that I know the Lord. It's only by grace that he forms his love in me. It's only by grace that I'm my heart is knit together with my sisters and my brothers in the body of Christ. And it's only by hope that he brings about his own glorious desired future for us and around us. Uh, the deepest hope of all comes when I recognize the hopelessness of this being my project, um, which makes it a glorious hope um, mm-hmm. that I can really put my the weight of my life on when I'm reminded it is entirely his project. So we just want to end with uh, two things. One, could you tell us a little bit about the book you're working on? And uh, two, we just would love to hear uh, what words of hope you'd like to offer to our listeners. Great. All right. Well, uh, Thanks for asking, Sean. The, the book I'm working on, I'm calling Inverted Flight. And uh, the first part of it is is dealing with this, um, the, the passage uh, where John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. And, um, and so it deals with the, the essential choice that's in front of us of uh, is, is my life about the self or is it about the glory of God? And then the, the last two thirds of the book uh, go to Romans chapter 11 from him and through him and to him are all things and they um the the book is autobiographical in its uh in its insight but not in the way that i write it i'm not writing about me i have discovered in the process uh that i'm in writing some of these things i'm entering into a conversation that the church has been having for about 1400 years. Uh, so it's like, it's not like there's anything new here, but uh, it's, it's rooted in the insight that if I lose sight of the fact that everything is from him, I become proud or self-reliant. And if I remember that everything is from him, then I become humble or God dependent. Uh, if I lose sight of, if I lose track of the fact that everything is through him, then I become self-important or vainglorious in my interactions with others. I elevate myself above them because I see my gifts as somehow being a reflection on me. If I remember that everything is through him, then uh, then I'm able to put others first and consider them more highly than I consider myself. So living life in a posture of modesty or right proportion uh, in the way that I view myself. And if I lose track of the fact that everything is to him or ultimately is for his sake, uh, then I become self-seeking and ambitious uh, that uh, it's my own reputation that is the thing that matters. But if I remember that everything is for his sake, that I exist for his sake and everything I do is for his sake, then anonymity becomes something that I prize. It's not about my reputation at all. It's his reputation that matters. And the word glory and reputation are really different ways of talking about the same thing. It's it's uh, which is interesting when you think about what is the reputation we have in our community, the conversation mm. we've been having. Um, what is the way that my life um, puts God on display or makes him known, gives the world glimpses of him? Um, so uh, it's been uh, uh, a lot of that is informed by work that God has been doing, uh, refining, shaping, sculpting me 
um, uh, and uh, he's not finished with any of those things, but it's been a really rich project to work on. I don't have a publisher mm -hmm. yet, but I'm just uh, hoping to wrap up the writing of it soon and and get it out there as soon as possible. And and I think by by way of hope, uh, I, I think I probably would reiterate um, the thought that I just had, which is, um, and Tom, you you kind of said this, to, to the extent that we paint the world with us occupying the place at the center, uh, to that extent, um, there's a lot that's hopeless where we find ourselves right now. Uh, because we feel like it's all about us when people get upset and we feel like it's all up to us to straighten everything out and get it all going the right direction and looking the way that pleases God. And uh, my deepest comfort in this um, is is resigning from those burdens and letting um, the, the project that I'm part of be God's project in me and God's project through me to the praise of his glorious grace. There's a ton of freedom and peace that comes in that. Well, David Henderson, thank you so much for Thanks. the gift of your time and uh, your wonderful thoughtfulness on on these themes and and just uh for the encouragement of your intentionality of living these things out uh that, that you, really is an encouragement and sean thank you as well been great to have you with us and uh we also thank our listeners for joining us today we invite you to comment at our website hoperenewedpodcast.com and you can uh, catch up with all our episodes there and it is our prayer, uh, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that the eyes of your heart be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Thank you for joining us on Hope Renewed. Please help us reach more pastors by sharing this episode with your friends. If you enjoy this podcast, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google or Spotify, or your favorite platform for receiving podcasts. Thank you. This means the world to us. The Hope Renewed Podcast is brought to you by PIR Ministries. At PIR, we partner with God and the church in the work of pastoral renewal and restoration. Pastors, our goal is to help you cultivate new hope for healthy life and ministry. We do this by building relationships. We train both pastors and churches to promote a culture of ministry health. If you've experienced a forced exit from ministry, we provide a process of restoration for you and your family. We also have proven resources and tools to assist you in the challenges of ministry life. To contact us or to learn more about PIR, visit PIRministries.org.